on Life. Well, hello. A huge welcome to Lucas on Life. I'm Jeff Lucas, and this last week here in America, we've been celebrating Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving Day, which happened last Thursday, is the annual national holiday in the USA and Canada celebrating the harvest and other blessings of the past year. Americans generally believe that their Thanksgiving is modelled on a 1621 harvest feast shared by the English colonists, the Pilgrims of Plymouth, and the Wampananog people. The American holiday is particularly rich in legend and symbolism, and the traditional fare of the Thanksgiving meal typically includes turkey, bread stuffing, potatoes, cranberries, and pumpkin pie. And the holiday is often the busiest of the year as family members gather with each other. Personally, I love it because you don't have to buy gifts and experience the pressures of Christmas shopping. It's simply a time to gather and be thankful. Perhaps with all that's going on at the moment around the world, being thankful is rather hard for us to do. But we hear the Bible call to make thanksgiving a daily part of our lives. Psalm 100 says, Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him and praise his name, for the Lord is good and his love endures forever. His faithfulness continues through all generations." In Ephesians 5, the Apostle Paul tells us that we should always be giving thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then Philippians 4, 6, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So the Bible repeatedly calls us to be thankful, grateful people. But just this last week, I discovered an article that suggests that perhaps we should incorporate thankfulness into our physical workout routines, that thankfulness is a muscle that needs to be exercised. The article appeared in Shape, a magazine dedicated to health and fitness. Being thankful literally resets the brain for the better, says one licensed psychiatrist. A study reveals a correlation between gratitude and one's propensity for engaging in healthy activities, like exercise. Gratitude is the practice of being thankful or taking time to think about what you're appreciative of in your life, explains Ernesto Lira de la Rosa, a licensed clinical psychologist and media advisor at the Hope for Depression Research Foundation. Practicing gratitude requires us to slow down and reflect on the good in our lives, which Lira de la Rosa says can offer plenty of health benefits. Research shows that those who practice gratitude have lower levels of stress and anxiety, he explains. Gratitude can also help us feel more connected to ourselves and others and help us take a different perspective. Now, I've been practicing this principle myself. I try to walk 20 to 30 miles a week, and in the past, hauling myself out of bed in the morning, I'd say, I have to walk. I must walk. But I've changed that sentence. Now I say, I get to walk. I have the privilege of time, health, and mobility that allows me to exercise, something that many people would love to do but can't. And it goes beyond exercise. Instead of saying, I must, 
I must pray, I must give generously, I must serve. Instead, I've replaced must with I get to. When I celebrate the truth that I have enough finances to give and I'm privileged to know the Jesus who wants me to share my life with him through prayer, my perspective changes. Discipline becomes a delight. So tonight, as we ponder the power of gratitude, I'd like to introduce you to some people that I met during visits to Ethiopia and Indonesia. They taught me so much about thankfulness. And then, on a lighter note, Let's also talk about the power and the perils of saying grace before meals. Thankfulness tonight. Perhaps you've been there. A family from your local church invite you out for a meal and you don't know them very well, but you're pleased by the opportunity. You share relaxed chatter while you wait for the food to arrive and then, as the steaming plates are delivered, tension grips your soul. You glance around the table, hoping for a signal, a hint that will steer your next move. Are these people those who always say grace or bless the food before eating, or do they view that practice as an empty religious tradition? Terrifyingly, nobody makes a move, and so you dig in, only to be on the receiving end of a frosty glare. Are we not thankful to the Lord for his bountiful provision, says someone rather snootily. Utterly shamed, you mumble an apology, hastily swallow your unblessed chicken, and endure a lengthy intercession, which sometimes actually includes prayer for everything but the food. Relief returns as the meal continues, hopefully without any hymn singing between courses. So, should we offer thanks for meals? Jesus was in the habit of blessing food, as was the Apostle Paul, who wrote to his young apprentice Timothy, and in a conversation about food laws, encourage gratitude. Everything God created is good. You shouldn't turn anything down. Instead, you should thank God for it. He says, the word of God and prayer make it holy. We can read that in 1 Timothy 4, verses 4 and 5. Let's neither be legalistic, condemning those who don't pray before meals, or dismissive, suggesting that the custom is just religious routine. But this much is absolutely certain. We are called to practice thankfulness in all of life and not just at mealtimes and not just at Thanksgiving. Back to Paul again, whose life and letters reverberate with thankfulness. Sometimes Paul is tagged as an awkward, stoic person, somebody so passionately focused on his mission that he might be difficult to get along with. Not much fun at a dinner party. But a closer look at his epistles shows him in a much warmer light. He had lots of friends. Writing to the church in Rome, he listed no less than 33 names in his final greetings. He rarely thanks God for things, but is more intentional to be thankful for people. The writer G.K. Chesterton was a giant, literally. The prolific author of over a hundred books and thousands of essays, he was six foot four tall and weighed 300 pounds. He obviously enjoyed his food, but celebrated so much more. Chesterton writes, You say grace before meals. I say grace before the concert and the opera, and grace before the play and the pantomime, and grace before I open a book, and grace before sketching, painting, swimming, fencing, boxing, walking, playing, dancing, and grace before I dip the pen in ink. But when it comes to saying grace before meals, sometimes it can go horribly wrong. 
a Christian couple invited another family to their home for a meal, wanting to impress their guests with the cherubic spirituality of their four-year-old. Mum invited her son to give thanks. Charlie, say grace. She smiled. The scowling infant folded his arms and declared his defiance. No. Come now, darling. We'd love you to say a prayer before we eat. Please go ahead. Charlie was resolute. No, I won't. He grunted. Mum was really desperate now because Charlie was definitely no angel. Charlie, please go ahead and just say what Daddy said at breakfast this morning. Charlie, a mischievous smirk on his face, closed his eyes, bowed his head, and said, Oh Lord, we've got those awful people coming for dinner tonight. Awkward. Some Christians give the impression that the Christian life is like living in Disneyland. They apparently skip from one breathless roller coaster experience of God to another. The Lord seems to be very, very busily engaged in almost constant conversation with them. They enjoy a dynamic prayer life, and epic miracles apparently accompany their every waking hour. I don't find the Christian life to be like this. God is wonderful and my life has been punctuated with more than my fair share of wonders. But many of my days fade into grey and should be filed under the heading of not much happened. And that's when thankfulness and gratitude can dry up. But perhaps we should look at those lacklustre days with renewed appreciation. I remember a visit to sweltering Banda Aceh, Indonesia, the city that suffered the greatest losses from the Boxing Day earthquake and tsunami that followed it back in 2004. On that day, something quite extraordinary happened to the sea, which bunched itself into a wave that delivered a knockout punch to the town. Over 200,000 perished there in that pummeling, including a coastal fishing village that just disappeared off the map in seconds. Tired fishermen pointed their boats back towards port and home that night, unaware that a monster had crept beneath their bows while they fussed over their nets. To their horror, there was no port, no homes to sleep in, no wives and children to greet them. All was gone. One morning I sipped coffee with Wahul, a delightful smiling man who told me that I looked young from the neck down, which was almost a compliment. More seriously, he had lost both his children to that wicked wave. His wife's entire family was wiped out. And then I chatted with a giggling Nuralia, a delightful 15-year-old whose home was still the temporary barracks that were hastily thrown up in the wake of that terrible day. Both of her parents perished in that awful sea. And just seconds after telling me that most dreadful news, she burst into singing in perfect English, the ABBA classic, I Believe in Angels. I'm sure she does, but for a moment, I wondered how. There were so many whose lives had been smashed to smithereens by that ominously historic day. Mass graves abounded, anonymous resting places for thousands, and many were never found, swallowed up by the ravenous beast that was the sea. All of which makes a restoration of relative normality a delight to behold. I visited the community and children's centre ran by Children on the Edge, the charity originally launched by the late body shop founder Anita Roddick. It was a hive of bustling normality. Kindergarten children giggled on the swings and computer-skilled classes were held in one room, embroidery in another. 
And then in a large hall, a children's choir were practicing their performance for an upcoming concert. All very ordinary and all very wonderful with it. On our final night, we attended a football match organized by the charity, the culmination of a two-week tournament. It was just like an England World Cup match, a mixture of brilliance and ineptitude, a penalty shootout nail-biter to decide the result, and even a petulant young player given a red cart and sent off for fouling and then getting lippy with the ref. We cheered ourselves hoarse as the grinning captain held the moulded plastic trophy aloft, which was almost as big as he was. The goalkeeper was the hero's saviour and so was thrown up into the air and caught. I wiped a tear away as I watched ordinary kids enjoying another ordinary day, thankful to be free from fear for a moment at least from a monster wave able to dream it, perhaps, about bending it like Beckham, able to laugh and argue and pull faces and have melting ice cream running down their chins, able to do what kids do best, which is just living thankfully and extravagantly for the moment. Those people didn't want a life that looks like a disaster movie, but where the special effects are real. They just want to be able to laugh and cry and wake and sleep and love and die like everybody else. Perhaps... Some of us are suffering from the raging disease that afflicts all who know for sure where their next meal is coming from. Boredom. The ordinary looks rather dull. Perhaps why don't we pause again and be thankful and grateful for days of quiet predictability where nothing much happens, including nothing much that is bad. Somehow, when we're grateful, the ordinary can start to look rather magnificent. Speaking of thankfulness, I got another amazing lesson in gratitude from two young people that I met during a visit to Ethiopia. Their story was so powerful. Sejan is 17, Darwit is just 12, and their brief journey through life has been shrouded by difficulty. Two little people alone in a big, intimidating world. Sejan and Darwit live in a tiny, dark, one-room shanty its bare brown walls enclosing just one bed which they share. Sejan has been the primary carer ever since their mother died five years ago from the AIDS virus. She took the reins of their home when she was just 12. The worries and weight of adulthood fell upon her far too soon. Their days are helped by the presence of a Christian-run community centre that provides education and basic health care and an occasional lifeline visit from a social worker. I asked Sejan what her dreams were. If she could have anything fairy godmother style, what would be her request? I actually wondered for a moment if the word dream would translate into Amharic. It must be difficult to ponder possibilities when every day is the same numbing uphill grind. But globalization means that Sejan and Darwit are very aware of the world beyond Africa. So would her teenage heart long for the latest techno device, a boyfriend, or more likely a one-way ticket out of a country where 60% of the population exist on less than 25 pence a day? She flashed that dazzling grin again. I'd like to live the Christian life well as a good example to my brother, she said. Both wanted to take career paths that would make life better for their peers. I stared into those bright, shining eyes. This was no rehearsed script to impress the visiting Westerner. 
There was no hand held up for a cash reward, a a few quid for a good answer. They both meant every word. When we left, we prayed together and we gave them gifts and they bowed their heads with embarrassment and I fought back tears, which would not have helped them. I felt like kneeling before these kids to humble myself before their lovely, focused, grateful hearts. That was my first visit to Africa and I was taken aback by the extravagant, unexplainable joy that I found there. The poverty in some nations is gut-wrenching. The AIDS pandemic has been devastating. The ravages of drought and war have left a country that looks like a post-nuclear attack landscape. But many of the people of Ethiopia are just beautiful and it's way beyond skin deep. We wandered into a tiny home where a family of six had adopted the boy next door who'd been orphaned by AIDS. Their meager resources were already stretched to the limit So why add to their burden? They saw the opportunity to care and serve as a privilege, and they were grateful. A leading missiologist spoke at a conference recently and suggested that we in the Western church have much to learn from our brothers and sisters overseas. I'm stunned to report that he received an irate letter from a conference delegate who insisted We have nothing, and I repeat, nothing to learn, and I repeat, nothing to learn from those overseas. It would be laughable if it wasn't so lamentable. Sajan and Darwit face some mountainous struggles ahead. They're at the bottom of the economic pile, disadvantaged and marginalized. I'm grateful for the charity that is helping them. But whatever we do, let's not call Sajan and Darwit poor because with our trivial, techno-obsessed and relationally dysfunctional culture, I think that we are the ones who are really poor. Let's learn a lesson from them and not wait for another day or even another hour to be grateful. As for me, it's time for me to go now because it's time to exercise. I must do my walk. Oops. I forgot. I get to do my walk. See you next week. Lucas on Life.